Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from one of our elders. I'd like to begin by reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13, and I'll be doing that in the New International Version. And this will also be our opening prayer. Uh, And I also apologize, we don't have slides with uh, Scripture on them today. But if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and we'll start with verse 10 through 13. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. To which I would add, amen. Have you ever imagined what it's like to be God? How he knows everything that's ever happened or everything that's going to happen? How he knows when we'll succeed or fail? Or how much he longs for us to spend time with him. These are good things to ponder, for they lead us into thinking about and dwelling on his character. Now let me ask you a more difficult question. Have you ever imagined that you are God? What does that look like? Do you think about putting people in their place who have opposed you? Do you dream up situations that show you you exercising magnificent benevolence? Are you suddenly able to do that that which you've never done? Speak a dozen languages, play a dozen instruments, hit a World Series winning home run, game seven, of course, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, broken arm, you know, standard stuff. You ever notice that in these utopic delusions, that nothing ever goes wrong when a fallible human replaces a perfect God. For one thing, I wouldn't know how to handle millions of prayers at the same time. It'd be something like this, uh, hello, prayer hotline, God speaking. Hello, Mike, will you hold? Thank you. Hello, Kathy, will you hold, please? Bill, hold, please. Bob, hold. Jennifer, hold, 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 hold. Then I'd hit the prayer switchboard with the supernova of lightning bolts and go golfing. When I was a teenager, I had several posters in my bedroom. One of them was a picture of a tree at sunset. It had these words, two basic facts of human enlightenment. One, there is a God. Two, you are not him. That's why I couldn't handle all those prayers. No matter how vivid my imagination, I am not God. Never have been and never will be. And you thought you had nothing else to be thankful for. You're welcome. To be God, you need to be sovereign. First, let's start with the meaning of sovereign. The dictionary 
defines sovereign as possessed of supreme power, unlimited in extent, and absolute. It also uses these phrases, having a controlling influence and free from external control or autonomous. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To create something out of nothing, you need to be powerful, far beyond the limits of mortal man. After all, we're the creation, not the creator. Impossible for finite man, and yet God just speaks the universe into existence. To be sovereign, you need to be powerful. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is not only powerful, he's eternal. Human kings and kingdoms rise and fall. Maps of the earth showing the borders of countries must be constantly redrawn. Empires turn to sand. But only the Lord is everlasting to everlasting. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is not only powerful enough to create, but he's able to control. The phrase, in him all things hold together. He's able to sustain, which is no mean feat, considering that a classical view of the second law of thermodynamics holds that entropy, which is often described as a level of chaos or disorder or unpredictable, unpredictability entropy never decreases but God is always in control to be sovereign then you need power and control control needs power to sustain and power needs control in order to function effectively like a burger and fries or fireworks on the 4th of July they just go together or to paraphrase a song from the movie Grease we go together like a ramalama ding-dong. <laughs> I'd like to think that my wife Sue and I are like that. Uh, I don't suppose many of you wondering, but just in case, case, let me state the obvious. She's the ramalama, I'm the ding-dong. <laughs> True story. What we've looked at is mostly an academic overview of God's sovereignty. This is important because we need to know what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. It gives us a shared understanding of how these scriptures affect our relationship with the Lord. But God's sovereignty involves much more than just mental assent of fact or doctrine. As we'll see, it's also very personal. At last year's Christmas Eve service, Pastor John shared that the birth of Jesus was an affront to our sovereignty, or more specifically, our desire to be sovereign. As we've seen, that's only an illusion. We're not all-powerful or in control of all events. We can barely control any event at times. 
Only God is sovereign and God alone. This then is the heart of the matter. God is sovereign and we're not, even though we so often act as if we were with disastrous results. The first part of Isaiah 53.6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Apostle Paul builds on this theme in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What's our problem? Our free will combined with our fallen state, inherently works to elevate ourselves and not God. Confronting this is where sovereignty becomes personal. Usually, things get real when things go wrong. How many of you know that something undesirable can happen to you or someone you care about without your prior permission? Yeah. Things like a bad test score, breaking something valuable, breaking a bone, loss of a job, a diagnosis of cancer, death of a loved one. There are events that occur in our lives that we would not willingly choose for ourselves. Since God is sovereign, I believe and can only conclude that either God causes things to happen or allows them to happen. The inevitable question is, why? Why does a loving God who cares for us allow famine and war, disease and disaster, pain and suffering? What about Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Was this the same sovereign who had his prophet Jeremiah proclaim that? Yes, it is. Here's one answer to those questions of why. When God created us, he gave us free will, even though he knew we would choose to disobey him. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that sin was passed down from Adam to every successive generation right down to us today. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. God did not want a relationship with robots, so he created human beings, and he created us in his own image. And he does give us hope and a future, thanks to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. For us, the sheep who went our own way. God causes or allows things to happen that we might quickly label as bad for several reasons. Let's take a look at three of them. First, to dis discipline us. Hebrews 12.6 says, Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Today, we often equate discipline with punishment. 
But in Scripture, it often involves training to produce obedience and righteousness, which might also require correction. Secondly, to purify us. Reading from James 4, uh, verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James prescribes purifying our hearts for the disease of being double-minded. This isn't simply being indecisive in any given moment, but rather trying to live a double life, vacillating between righteousness and worldliness. In chapter 1, verse 8, James called people who are double-minded unstable in all their ways. In this case, God may allow or cause events we find undesirable to happen, not only to get our attention, but as a means of purifying our hearts. He wants us to stop being worldly and choose him and his righteousness. Third, to move us from sympathy to empathy. Although I won't read it here, you should look up the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. It's fairly well known. You'd find the example of the Good Samaritan helping someone that he uh, was not accepted by who is in distress. Sympathy is a broad term signifying harmony or agreement of feelings toward another person. Empathy is narrower and usually only exists where someone has actually experienced what another person is currently going through. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, Paul said, we are compelled by the love of Christ. It's a belief that forces us to act on behalf of others. As the adage goes, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And related to this is what Paul described in Philippians 3.10 to share in the fellowship of his suffering. Well, that's one answer, albeit a very long one. And yet for many, not the answer they want. Although scriptural, that answer may seem more like a response to the question of how rather than why. One person who saw through this question behind the question was the Apostle Paul. In the ninth chapter of his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul lays out the real issue, which is our rebelling against God's sovereignty and questioning, questioning whether he's even fair. Putting God's inscrutable will front and center, the apostle uses Esau and Jacob, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, as an example of God's sovereignty. If you have your Bible, uh, look on with me as I read from Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 24. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, she being Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Paul asked these questions rhetorically, likely because he faced them before. But his reply shows that their premise is seriously flawed, and he's having none of it. Picking up again at verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common uses? By the way, verse 21 is even more blunt in the J.B. Phillips translation. Listen to this. Making from one part of the lump a lovely vase and with another a pipe for sewage. Bet you've never prayed this. Dear Heavenly Father, let me be a sewage pipe for Jesus. Not our first choice. Finishing up with verses 22 through 24. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in glory, in advance for glory, even us, for whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Isn't it tragic that humans, sometimes even Christians, try to reframe the truth that God is sovereign into a false and worthless notion that he isn't even fair? It's easy to miss this point. God's sovereignty is part of his designed plan for you and me. Instead, we want to be in charge. Just like in the closing line of William Henley's poem, Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. I'm not sure if that unrelenting reliance on self leaves much room for a relationship with the Lord who loves us so much. Some of you might remember Bob Ross. He was an artist, soft-spoken, had a pretty, pretty uh, big Afro-like perm. He hosted the uh, PBS program, The Joy of Painting, in the 80s and 90s before he passed away in 1995. He'd start off his programs with a blank canvas. And most of the time, he used a big brush, the size of a brush that you would use to paint your house. And then he'd set out and create this beautiful landscape often featuring, as he liked to call them, happy little trees. <laughs> when I was unemployed five years ago, I watched some of these reruns that PBS still airs. I was fascinated not only by his talent and his quick pace, but by an oft-repeated practice. Just when I thought he was done, he'd start adding something else. But between his style and speed and that house brush the size of a 57 Buick, he looked like he was totally trashing this masterpiece. And he did this to the same painting three or four times. And not just in one episode, this was a standard practice episode from episode. 
More than once, I wanted to shout at my television, stop, you're ruining a perfectly good painting. You don't know what you're doing. Sometimes, when things don't go the way we want, God seems a lot like Bob Ross, maybe without the afro. We tell God, stop, you're messing up my life. You don't know what you're doing. I admit I had those thoughts seven years ago when my next older brother, Reed, died. And again, two years later, when I lost my job. But you know what? God knows exactly what he's doing. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's during times of pain, suffering, and loss that we're most likely to seek God. We've already seen that in our series on Nehemiah. When did Nehemiah weep, mourn, fast, and pray? After hearing that Jerusalem was undefended and his people were in distress. That's when he sought the Lord. Let me say it again. It's during times of pain, suffering, and loss that we're most likely to seek God. That's when he seems closest. That's when we're most likely to listen to him. It's then we see through the illusion of self-sovereignty and embrace the fact that God alone is sovereign. But be careful. The longer we fight with God over control of our lives, the greater it can lead us to set our harmful attitudes in concrete. In Romans, Paul warns of the onset of bitterness in the form of this question. Why did you make me like this? He also warns of creeping disillusionment leading to despair with, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Paul showed us that the wrong attitudes lead to the wrong premise. The wrong premise leads to the wrong questions. The wrong questions lead to the wrong conclusions about who God is and what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. In a sermon he preached in January of this year, Pastor Tim said, what we believe and what we confess matters. What you believe and what you confess about God's sovereignty will determine what you think about God and how you will live. The question before us is, will I trust God? I encourage you to answer that with an emphatic yes, Lord. Let me continue to encourage you with this. Rejoice that God is sovereign. Praise him that he has plans of hope and a future for us. Thank him for his outrageous love for us. And remember, he really does know what he's doing, so we really can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are sovereign. Father, help us not to fight that, but to embrace that. Correct us gently when we get to feeling like we should be in control of our lives.
And Lord, uh, remind us that you love us so and that you really do know what you're doing. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.